We're going to continue this morning our study in the book of Habakkuk, Old Testament prophet and the minor prophets. Again, be reminded, minor prophets does not mean that their message was of less importance than the major prophets. Just whoever decided to categorize the prophets cited major and minor prophets, which I guess the other options would be big and little prophets or long and short prophets or whatever, because the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is how much they wrote. The major prophets wrote big books and the minor prophets wrote little books. And that's sometimes why the minor prophets are harder to find because they're all tiny little books that take up maybe a page or two in your Bible. So the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, we have been looking at the prophet Habakkuk and his message that God gave him. Now, for those who are not here for the last several weeks as we've been going through this, I just want to go for a quick review. The time of the writing is somewhere between 609 and 607 B.C. Now, you remember after the reign of Solomon, when Rehoboam came to the throne, the kingdom had split into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And the northern kingdom was taken captive and, and uh, destroyed in around 724 B.C. And so the northern kingdom is already gone. But the southern kingdom, Judah, remains, although the southern kingdom, even after seeing God's judgment upon the northern kingdom, did not repent. They continued to live in their idolatry. They continued to live in wickedness. They continued not to follow the law of God. And as we come to 609 to 607 time frame, when Habakkuk was on the scene, we find Habakkuk crying over the condition of his nation. Now, as we looked at those verses, those first few verses in the chapter 1, we looked at Habakkuk's cry and applied that to how we should cry over the sin of the nation, our nation, the sin that we see in church today, but most importantly, the sin in our own lives should break our heart because we don't want to be offending a holy God, right? Then we looked at God's response to Habakkuk saying, Habakkuk, if these people do not repent, I'm going to send a judgment on them, and the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, are going to come and destroy this nation. Now we understand that that started in 605 B.C., was the first time Nebuchadnezzar came down and as he came into Jerusalem, he took of the finest of the princes and finest of the things that they had. And, and that is when Daniel was taken captive. Then a few years later, he decided to run another campaign against Judah. And that was in 597 BC. That's when Ezekiel was taken captive. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar got fed up with Judah and he totally wiped them out and destroyed it. And so we're only a few years away from this judgment falling upon Judah when Habakkuk is, is given this prophecy. So we saw God's coming judgment and we, uh, we examined how that the Bible teaches is it appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That every person is going to stand before Jesus Christ as judge. And we looked at two different judgments that apply to us today, the 
great white throne judgment, that is for all who have not received Christ as Savior, and the judgment seat of Christ, and that is for a judgment for Christians. Now, one is a judgment of condemnation. That is the great white throne judgment. The other is a judgment of rewards. That is the judgment seat of Christ. And we evaluate, ask to evaluate, are you ready to stand before God in judgment? Now, this morning, we're going to look at Habakkuk's response to God, and I titled it Habakkuk's Consternation. Now, that's not a word we probably use all the time, but I beginning my messages with C's, so it was a C. That was a real good reason to pick the word, right? Consternation means amazement or astonishment or dismay. When God said, I'm going to use the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to send this judgment, Habakkuk's surprised. Because God, why are you going to use them? Isn't it interesting how many times in life we try to help God do his job? Well, God, you know, I don't think that's the right way to do it. Really, did you ever think about that? We, the creature, telling the creator, you're doing it wrong? Well, that's exactly where Habakkuk finds himself. And so we're going to look at verses 12 in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to go down through chapter 2 and verse 1. Now remember, when the books were written, they did not write in verse and chapter. Okay, they wrote a letter or wrote whatever they're going to write. Now, the book of Psalms actually was written separate Psalms, okay, because they were separate songs. But most of the books of the Bible, the chapters and verses were added later. And so as I read this passage, I believe chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, really goes with what we're going to look at today. That's why we're going to go into chapter 2, okay? But he was astonished that God was going to use the Chaldeans to judge his people. And let us go ahead, and, and if we are physically able, to please stand for the honor of the reading of God's word this morning as we read Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of pure eyes, then behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle, they catch them with their net, they gather them in their drag, therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? I will stand upon my watch, and I will sit upon, my, upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And so the three points I want us to see this morning as we examine this passage. First, I want us to observe God's character in verses 12 and 13. God's character in verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we're going to notice Habakkuk's comparisons in verses 13 through 15. Habakkuk's comparisons. Then we're going to end with Habakkuk's conclusion 
And we'll see that in uh, verse 16 going through chapter 2 and verse 1. Christian, you and I need to understand God is in control of all circumstances. You and I are not the question, but the trust that God is in control. Father, again, I pray your blessing on the reading of your word and on the preaching of your word, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Looking at God's character, it's, it's, it's important you and I get a proper view of God. When we get a proper view of God, you and I will have a proper view of self. You remember Isaiah the prophet in, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, how that it says in the beginning of, of the chapter how that Isaiah uh, stood at the throne of God. I'll tell you what, why don't you just hold your place here at Habakkuk. Don't lose it because it'd be hard to find again. And flip back just a couple books and let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6 if you would please. Isaiah chapter 6, and that's one of the major prophets, so it should be easier to find. Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, the Word of God says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each had two wing, had six wings, with twain he did cover his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips that dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I want you to see here, and when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he got a different view of self. And you and I need to understand who our God is and have a proper view of God, because the more we understand the holiness of God, the more we're going to understand the sinfulness of self. We have a whole society that talks about your self-esteem and your self-image and your self-this and self-that. Listen, you know what the problem is? Most of us really actually don't have a problem with our thinking too much of self, we, we, because the problem is we do think too much of ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we need to go around with a sword ready to fall on it all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. But a true humility that understands, without God, I am nothing. But in order to have that understanding, we truly need to understand how holy and how righteous our God is. God is perfect in every way. As I said in one of the earlier services, it's not that God shows love. We show love. But the Bible teaches God is love. These are his characteristics. He is mercy. He is, he, he, because it's part of who he is. And as we have the image of God, we show those things, but it's not part of who we are. If that makes sense. I hope it does. If not, catch me later. We'll talk about it. But we need to focus on God's character. And remember that he is still God. Proverbs 21.1 the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it wheresoever he will. You see, Habakkuk's problem is now looking, God says he's going to use the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to judge, and he's like, wait a minute. Why them? Well, who are you and I to question who God uses or God chooses to use? I'll be honest with you. We have seen, and I believe God is trying to get the attention of our nation, don't you? I believe we have seen God's judgment at times and, and on our own nation. Because, but what if you picked in 9-11 for it to be the Muslims that God chose to use to judge us? 
Probably not. But it was God's choice, not ours. Now, I'm not saying God made it happen, okay? God allowed it to happen. Because remember, God is good. God is holy. And so as we talk of judgment, let's not get confused about who our God is. Okay, and if, and if I, I hope that today does not create confusion in your mind and get an improper view of God, but God does judge sin. While God is love, God is mercy, God has provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's not forget that God has showed his love. He's shown his grace. He's shown his mercy. He has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross of Calvary. However, God also says that sin must be punished, right? And so God is a holy God. God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. And he is all these things, and his character is not unbalanced. It is perfectly balanced. And so God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, but when one rejects Christ... As I said, with the judgment of God, those that reject Christ will stand at the great white throne judgment. Now, it's not God's desire for any person to go to hell because he has said that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he has proven his love for man by God the Son, God himself becoming a man and dying on the cross of Calvary to pay for your sin and to pay for mine. You see, God loved man enough that he died and took our place on the cross of Calvary. Because sin must be punished, God took the punishment upon himself. But he still has given man a free choice to choose to receive Christ's payment or to reject Christ's payment. So nobody who stands at the great white throne judgment could blame God because God has given him a choice. But Habakkuk recognizes several things about God. First of all, he says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? In other words, he's comparing God to the gods of the Chaldeans. The gods of the Chaldeans, well, many nations have come, many nations have fallen, and their gods have gone by the wayside, right? When you study Rome and you study Greece and you study Babylon, in, in part of their history you study their gods, but their gods were not real gods. There is only one true God, his name is Jehovah God. He's the almighty God. He's the God that you and I serve. He's the only living God. Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Remember, time is a creation of God. God is outside of time. So everlasting or eternity is a concept that you and I have a hard time understanding because you and I are bound by time and think in a linear time because that's all we know. But God is not in time. He's eternal. But God is everlasting. And then secondly, we see Habakkuk also recognizes God is holy. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one? God, that's one of the names of God, used several times in Scripture, the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 89, verse 18, For the Lord is our defense, the Holy One of Israel is our King. But the people have turned from God to false idols. Yes, even the people of Judah, the Jews have turned from God to serving false idols. And it's interesting to me, as we're going to look at in just a moment, the comparisons Habakkuk makes that we're more righteous than they when they're committing the same sins that these other people are committing. But the people are living in wickedness and against the commands of God. 
but God is holy. He's sacred. He's set apart. He's separate. As we read in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels crying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. A thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk also recognizes God is pure. Look at verse 13. Thou art purer eyes than behold evil. Job tells us, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall man be more pure than his maker? John says in 1 John 3, 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. One of the characteristics of God is he's pure. Now we have been tainted by sin, but we should desire as Christians to live a pure life, should we not? So looking at God's character, Habakkuk recognizes God is everlasting, he's holy, he's pure, but then he gives a plea that it will not be a complete destruction. Verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. Now he's not making a statement as much as, he, as saying nobody's going to die, but it's more of a, Lord, don't allow this to be a complete annihilation. Allow there to be a remnant left. God always has preserved a remnant. Let's move on then, secondly, to Habakkuk's comparison. Verse 13. Thou to pure eyes to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and hold thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? He, he questions God and the use of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to send judgment. He compares the wickedness of the Chaldeans to the Jews and asserts that the Jews are more righteous. Look at that again. He says, when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he. Why are you going to use these wicked people to judge us because we're more righteous than they are? Now, let's just go think back for those who were here, when we looked at the first four verses, what was Habakkuk crying about? What was, he, what was his cry to God? The violence in the land, the wickedness in the land, how evil people are acting toward one another. But then when God says, I'm going to send judgment, well, wait a minute, God, don't use them because they're more wicked than we are. Folks, may I say this is human nature to always try to compare ourselves to others. Because I, when I compare myself to others, I am showing my pride because it's very easy to look at the faults in somebody else and say, I'm better than they are. That in and of itself shows our pride and arrogance in ourselves. Well, I'm not doing as bad as they are. We're doing better than them. Our church is better than that. We don't do that. I'm not as wicked as they are. You were just crying over the wickedness and violence in your own land, and now all of a sudden God tells you he's going to judge it, but don't use them, God, because they're worse than we are. Again, too often we think we know better than God Almighty, and we try to help God be God. How about we let God be God, and we just say, yes, Lord, and follow? Wouldn't that make more sense? But Habakkuk looks and says, we're more righteous than they Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, 
but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. The illustration Paul gives here is very interesting. He says they're measuring themselves by themselves. They're comparing themselves among themselves. So, again, typical human nature. Well, I read my Bible more than he does, so I'm more spiritual than he is. I do this, and they don't. Or I don't do what they do, so I'm more spiritual than they are. And Paul says this was happening in the church. You know, unfortunately... Human nature hasn't changed. And I see people still doing this today. Well, I must be more spiritual because I do this. You know what you are? You're proud and arrogant. That's what you are. When you go around comparing yourself to others. Well, I would never do such a thing. You know what the problem is? We're using the wrong measuring stick. Because I do not compare myself to you. I do not compare myself to other pastors. I do not compare myself to other people. You know what my standard is? You know what my measuring stick is? Jesus Christ himself. Because my goal in life should be to be like Jesus Christ. And when I place my life up against Jesus Christ, you know what I find? I fall woefully short. I have a lot of work to do. I'm not there yet. But if I use him as my comparison, I'm constantly going to be growing versus looking around at others, comparing myself, thinking, I'm okay. That's pride. My comparison is not others. Now, have I been guilty of that in my life? I will tell you, unfortunately, yes. I'll give you an illustration. When I was in boot camp, I looked around at half the clowns there, and I'm like, if they can make it, I can make it. That was comparing myself among others, right? But somehow it helped me comparing myself and saying, if that clown can make it, I'm going to make it. Not the way to do it. You get what I'm saying? See, but too often we're quick to judge the sin of others without looking to sin in our own lives. Not too long ago in a message, we talked about how Jesus says that we are to look at the beam in our own eye before we try to take care of the moat in somebody else's eye. It's not that we don't ever help somebody else out or point out that they may be on a wrong path or, or have sin in their lives, but it's that I'm to take care of the sin in my own life first. But if I'm comparing myself thinking I'm better than Ed, then I'm not taking care of the sin in my own life. But if my comparison is Jesus Christ, I realize I take care of the sin in my life that I may be able to help others. Because if I'm comparing myself to him thinking I'm better than him, am I really going to be any help? No, no I'm not. But if I'm comparing myself to Christ and realize I also fall woefully short, then can I reach out to a brother and be help to them and help bring them along? You see the difference? Every aspect of life, Christian, you and I need to walk with a humility, walk humbly with our God so that we can treat others properly. Let me tell you something. This message is for everybody in this room, including this preacher, because I've been guilty way too many times judging others without judging myself first. We're all guilty of it. You know why? Because it's our wicked, human, sinful nature that tends to do so very quickly. But as we're walking with God, we're not going to be so quick to judge. You know, it's interesting. Again, talking about comparisons, you can have a young couple who you talk about homosexuality and they're all with you condemning homosexuality, but they're shacking up together and don't see a problem with their own sin. 
Listen, folks, it doesn't matter what society teaches. Shacking up is still wrong. When I was going to marry my wife, I got the apartment. I set up the apartment. I had her help because she's left-handed, I'm right-handed. I actually thought I'd help set up the kitchen, so I put everything in the kitchen cabinets. When she finally moved in after we were married, after we were married, she took the whole kitchen and reversed it. I learned left-handers do things differently. But she says she's in her right mind, and I'm not going to argue with her. Habakkuk questioned the method of judgment God chose to use. Let's go on to verse 14. And makest men as fishes of the sea, and creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all them with the angle, and they catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. He compares the children of Israel, or the children of Judah, to fish in the sea that are left to be devoured by large fish or by the fishermen. It's interesting that um, the fishermen, recreational fishermen and commercial fishermen, I don't think the twain shall ever meet because both think that the other's destroying the population of the fish. But the truth is, is you put down a big net and you're able to catch a whole lot more fish than you are with just a rod and reel, right? Rod and reel, you might catch one at a time, and net, you drag a whole bunch of them up at the same time. But the, either way, you're still catching the fish. And so what Habakkuk's comparison here is, is saying, God, the Chaldeans are just like a bunch of fishermen, and they're just catching fish, and then they go to the next nation, and they destroy it. They're just, they're, they're just going to keep going because they're getting fat off of this. They're getting wealthy off of this. They keep destroying all these nations, stealing all their goods and, you know, uh, replacing their people and, and making them work and do all these things. And, and so God, you're, you're just treating us like a bunch of fish to be caught by the Chaldeans. Matthew Henry put it this way in his com uh, commentary. He says, they're given up to the Chaldeans as fish to the fishermen those proud oppressors make no conscience of killing them any more than men do of pulling fish out of the water. So small account do they make of human lives. They make no difficulty of killing them, but do it as much ease as, as men catch fish that make no resistance, but are unguarded and unarmed. And it's rather a pastime than any pains to, to take them. They make no distinction among them, but all is fish that come to their net and they reckon everything their own that they can lay their hands on. They have various ways of spoiling and destroying as men of taking fish. When I read that the first time, I almost felt guilty about fishing, but I got over it real fast, okay? Because you know I love to fish, and I know Brother Rich loves to fish, so we're not going to feel guilty about fishing. But the analogy still stands. He says, look, just as fish are unarmed, undefensible, you throw out a net or you throw out a hook and you catch them, and you just take them, right? You eat them, or at least that's what most of us do with them, right? But you don't think about killing the fish. He says, in the same manner, so the Chaldeans have no value of human life. They're just going in and destroying and taking everything. So again, he's questioning, God, have you really thought about your plan here? You're using these wicked people who are just destroying. They have no value of life, no value of anything. Why are you using them and your judgment. Now, 
I will tell you, because it will be a few weeks till we get to it, especially since I'm going away for a few weeks, God does explain to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, he does explain to him that I am going to judge the Chaldeans. You see, here again, you and I need to realize we don't question God's methods. We don't question what God is doing. We just simply trust God. And God has said he will reward the righteous. He will judge the evil. And so even if it seems evil is prevailing and evil is being used of God, remember something, God is still going to judge, right? He's a just judge. So let's not question his methods. Just because we don't understand what God is doing doesn't mean he's not in control. How many times in life have you thought God has abandoned you? How many times in life have you thought God's lost control? Let me tell you something. The beauty of it is, is God is still on his eternal throne and God is still in control. Nothing has ever taken God by surprise. Nothing has ever challenged God. He is God. Job says in Job 23, remember, Job didn't have the uh, understanding that we have of the book of Job. Now, you remember the beginning of Job, that Job had all this wealth and all these children and all these things, and then Satan comes before God, and God says, have you considered my servant Job, that he's an upright man, he eschews evil, he's one that fears God. And Satan challenges and says, but God, he only does it because you put a hedge of protection about him and you provided for Job. You take everything Job has and he's going to curse you. And God says, okay, Job, or okay, Satan, I'll give you permission to take everything away from my servant Job. And in one day, Job hears about his cattle being lost, his sheep being lost, his camels being lost, his children being lost, everything. And one day, Job lost it all. Yet Job did not curse God. And so Satan stands before God again and he says, well, it's, it's eye for an eye. You see, the only reason why Job is still serving you is because he has his physical health. You take his health from him and Job will curse you. And God says, okay, you can do whatever you want, but don't kill him. And God, or Satan comes to Job and he gives him boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And Job can't sleep day and night because of the agony and the pain he's in. But let me tell you something, this whole time, Job does not understand the conversation that happened between Satan and God. All Job knows is, well, I'm serving God. I lost everything. I lost my health, but yet I'm still going to serve God. Because, folks, that's what faith is. That's what trust is. No matter what God allows to happen in your life, you still trust him because he's still God. Still trust him because he's still God. And these are the words that Job says. He says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, I feel all alone. I'm looking for God. And, 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 and he says this metaphorically. I look for him in, uh, to the front. I look him toward to the rear. I look for him on either side. I can't find him. But I know one thing. Although it seems like God has abandoned me, I know that he's trying me. And I know I shall come forth as gold. Listen, folks, because we can hold on to the precious promises of God that he, is not, he does not desire evil upon you. He does not desire bad upon you, but God has a, a good and perfect will for your life. You do realize God wants you to have not just a life, 
but an abundant life. He wants you to be able to enjoy life serving him. He wants you to have a good life. Now, the world considers a good life getting drunk. I never quite understood that one. The world considers a good life getting high. The world considers good life being with all women they want to be. They consider that the good life. But let me tell you something. It leaves them empty because they're not filled with God. You see, every one of us, we are created in the image of God. But when man chose to sin, there was an emptiness inside of man. And the only thing that can fill that emptiness is God himself. But I'm thankful Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. When we receive Christ as Savior, God indwells us and fills that void, aren't you? So we see Habakkuk, first of all, talking about the character of God. And then Habakkuk compares and says, we're more righteous than they are. God, you're treating us like just a bunch of fish for them to come and catch. And then he comes to this conclusion, starting at verse 16. He says, therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their, uh, under their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat is plenteous. He says, the wicked are going to rejoice in their wickedness. They're glad of their gain of destroying others. Could you imagine when Babylon finally destroyed Jerusalem? Because you remember, as we study the scriptures, and, we, and it tells us about the, the temple that Solomon had built, and all the gold that was in the temple, all the silver that was in the temple. Guess who took all that? Babylon did. Daniel makes it very clear that they had all those vessels in Babylon, right? They were getting rich off of it. They were getting fat off of this. They're going nation to nation, destroying these nations and keeping all the goods for themselves, sitting back fat, dumb, and happy. And Habakkuk says, that's not fair. You know, I'm sure every parent has had to say this to their children at least once. Life is not fair, right? You ever had to tell your children that? You ever had to tell yourself that? Hmm. But remember this, God does say he's going to judge them, just not now. Romans 1.32, as Paul goes through the whole progression of sin, it says, when they knew God, they worshiped not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in the imaginations of their hearts. And he goes through the whole process of the wickedness of men being given over to a reprobate mind. And it comes down to verse 32, and he says this, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Sinners love to have company. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the world is going to look at you and call you names or whatever just because you refuse to participate in their sin. I told you before, when I was in San Diego, California, we were right near the border of Tijuana. And so on the weekends, many of the sailors would go across the border and go get drunk and come back. And one morning, I got up on a Saturday morning, and the guy on the top rack had gotten sick and vomited, and it's dripping down on the guy below him. And when I got back, Later that Saturday day, they, they're like, Core, 
you really missed out, man. We had a great time last night. It was so fun. Man, we got plastered, and it was great. And Man, we had all this fun, and it was a blast. I was like, you know what? I saw you this morning laying in his vomit. I don't think that looked very pleasing to me. Oh, you're just an idiot, aren't you? Oh, you're just one of those holy rollers. Oh, you just think you're better than us. I said, no, I don't think I'm better than you. I just don't see the pleasure in what you're doing. Oh, so you just think, and that's what they do. They automatically judge you. The ones that are always telling us not to judge will be very quick to judge you saying, oh, you holy roller, you're trying to push all your, your religion on me just because you take a stand and say, I'm not going to be a fool like you are. I didn't say it in those words, okay? Back then I probably did because I didn't have near the filter on my mouth that I have now. But anyhow, that's a different story. Sometimes just taking a stand brings conviction to people and they get mad at you for it. But take the stand anyhow. Don't worry about it. Let them say what they're going to say. Because they have pleasure in them, as Proverbs 26, 11 says. And again, I'm sorry for this crassness of this uh, illustration. And God doesn't mean it to be bring a horrible image to mind, but he's trying to help you understand how the, how sin really is. He says, as a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. You know what those guys did in San Diego the very next weekend? Did the same thing all over again. And still mocking me because I refused to join them in it. The wicked are proud of their accomplishments and they give credit to themselves. You see, the net and the drag could be equated to their own craftiness. They were proud of what they have accomplished. Now think of this. Here the Babylonians are, going and literally destroying nations, stealing everything from them, and look at how good we are. We're some good warriors. Man, we're really good at this. Because men take pride in what will make them rich. And men will worship what will make them rich. Hence his illustration of they worship and burn incense to the net and the drag because it's their own craftiness of taking these nations over that, and they're so, so good at war that they, they worship that because it's what makes them rich. But verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Here's what Habakkuk's saying. God, they're going to draw the net. They're going to empty it out. They're going to praise their net because all the fish they caught. And then they're going to throw the net back in and they're going to do it all over again. And they're just going to keep going. When's it going to stop? Now remember, later God does tell Habakkuk that he's going to send judgment on the Chaldeans. There will be a stop to this. But he doesn't know that yet. Adam Clark writes this. He says, they are running from conquest to conquest, burning, slaying, sacking, and slaughtering like the fishermen who throw cast after cast while any fish are to be caught, so Nebuchadnezzar is destroying one nation after another. Years ago, when I would go shrimping here, you didn't have a catch limit. And a buddy of mine and I would go out with a big 48-quart um, cooler, and we would be casting, and once the shrimp really were there, man, we would cast as fast as we could, get out the bigger cast nets, and we would cast that because we wanted to fill up that 48-quart cooler, right? And we didn't care about the shrimp. I didn't sit there and feel sorry for them. I just catching them because they're good eating. Well, Habakkuk is saying this is the way the Chaldeans are treating nations, just destroying them, and then when they're done, they just clean the net and start all over again. 
sometimes you and I look around and we say, when is the violence going to stop? When is the wickedness in our nation going to stop? When are things going to turn right? Well, folks, how about instead of looking at it that way, we thank God that he's long-suffering and giving time for people to repent. Because let me tell you something. When the hand of judgment drops, it's not going to be pleasant, right? Got awfully quiet there. Habakkuk fears nothing's going to stop the Chaldeans from continuing. But then he stops, and then in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch and see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait for an answer, Lord. I'm going to wait for an answer. You know what one of the hardest things in life to do is wait. Now, the military taught those of us who served how to wait because you would run to get there, and then you'd stand there and wait for two hours doing absolutely nothing. I don't know if they did that in the Air Force, but the rest of us, you did that too? Okay. The Navy was horrible about it. I mean, and so was the Marine Corps. I got to admit it. They were bad too. But you run there. Got to get there. Hurry up. Move. And you stand there and wait two hours doing absolutely nothing. Hurry up and wait. But nobody likes to wait. We want everything yesterday, if not sooner. We're in such a shake-and-bake society. I mean, we stand, you know, yes, I admit it. I've told you, I, I can be an impatient man at times. I'll be the one standing there at the microwave telling it to hurry up. I get it. I hate waiting. Most of us do. I will say the older I'm getting, the more God is teaching me how to wait. Teaching patience. I'm learning that patience is an older man trait. It definitely is not typically a young man's trait. Is that true? Yes. And unfortunately, we're living in a society where it's not even becoming an older man trait anymore or older person trait. But the Bible still teaches in Isaiah 40, 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, I believe that verse, the word wait has two applications or two definitions of the word that we think of as waiting that apply to that verse. They that wait upon the Lord. Now, when we think of waiting, often we think of, you know, the doctor says, you must be here 15 minutes earlier. You're going to miss your appointment. But 45 minutes later, you're still waiting for him to show up, right? That is one way in which we wait on God is waiting for his timing on things. We never want to run ahead of God. We never want to lag behind God. We want to do things on his timing. But there's another definition of wait that I believe applies to Isaiah 40, 31, and this is that. In just a few minutes from now, we're going to dismiss, and Lord willing, I'm going to be taking some folks to a restaurant, and there's going to be a person come to the table, and they are going to wait on me. Now, I don't expect my waiter or waitress to sit there and say, I'm waiting. Okay? But that is actually an action verb where they are serving me, is the idea. So when it says, they that wait upon the Lord, means I'm serving God while I'm waiting for further instruction. You see, when I would get orders in, in the Navy, 
I didn't say, well, hey, I got orders to the next place. I guess I'm not going to do anything here anymore. Right? No, I kept serving until the orders were to be fulfilled. Then you move and go to the next place, and then you serve there. Correct? Okay. So both apply. You're serving here while you're waiting for the next order. Do what you know you're supposed to do today, serving God, so that he can give you the direction for tomorrow. It's simply what it is. And so Isaiah, or Isaiah, Habakkuk, this guy that we're talking about today, it's on the screen up there. <laughs> Noah, Moses, I don't know, somebody, Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to be on my post. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do while I wait for the answer he didn't just sit in a closet and wait for the answer. He continued to do what he was supposed to do, continued serving God while he's waiting for the answer from God. You know what the problem is? We either get lazy and stop, say, okay, God, now what do you want me to do? No, he didn't want you to stop. He wanted you to continue serving. Or we are so impatient waiting that we make something up and say, God, that's God's direction for us. Because most of us, by nature, are very impatient people, are we not? You know, sometimes the best thing for you to do is just sit and wait. Sit and wait. Now, I know sometimes people look and think, I've been waiting a long time. Well, in God's perfect timing, because is he not in control? God will bring it to pass. In God's perfect timing. But you know what the problem is? We think our timing is perfect, not God's timing. If I had everything I wanted in my timing, my life would be a complete shambles. And there are some things that God knew weren't good for me at all and never happened. Now I'm looking back at some of them like, wow, thank you, Lord, for protecting me from my own stupidity. You ever feel that? So stand your post while you wait. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand ye, stand ye in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Now, the old English word for quit doesn't mean pack your bags and go home. It means stand firm. Quit you like men, stand firm, stand strong, continue. So Habakkuk has seen the wickedness of the people of Judah. He's cried to God over the wickedness. God has revealed that he's going to judge using the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Now Habakkuk is perplexed because God has chosen such a wicked people to accomplish his purpose. And in this passage, he started by acknowledging the character of God, then proceeds to compare his people with the Chaldeans and says he's himself more righteous than they. So he complains to God that he's going to use such people and they're going to continue their destruction. But then Habakkuk stops and waits for a response. I'm going to let you in on a little secret if you haven't read the rest of Habakkuk yet. By the end of the book, Habakkuk gets a complete change of heart. Sometimes you and I need to wait and understand God is still in control. Stop complaining about the way things are and realize he has a plan which will give us a change of heart to just simply trust him and follow and obey him. Let us not compare ourselves with others, but rather compare ourselves to Christ. Let us not complain about what God is doing, but rather simply live in trust. Live by faith, trusting him.
Christian, I hope each of you here today take this message and apply it to your hearts and lives and that we will stop comparing ourselves among each other, but we'll compare ourselves to the standard of Jesus Christ. But friend, if you're here today and you've never received Christ as Savior, let me tell you, as we talked last week, there is judgment coming. I don't say this to scare you. I don't say this because God is mean and hates you. But every one of us is going to stand before judgment. As I mentioned last week, there are two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ is for those that are born-again believers, those that are saved. The Bible teaches that we will stand before Christ at a judgment of rewards. There'll be either rewards given or loss of rewards, but there will be no condemnation at that judgment. But those that do not know Christ as Savior, there is a different judgment given to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 called the Great White Throne Judgment. And at that judgment, every one of the people at the judgment end up in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. It is an eternal judgment separated from God. Again, it's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God has provided a way of salvation, a way for you to have your sins forgiven, a way for you to have eternal life, a way for you to have an assurance of a home in heaven through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. He became a man. God stepped into his own creation and became part of his creation. Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, did not inherit a sin nature. He lived a perfect sinless life and gave his life a substitute in your place because the wages of sin is death. There is wages to be paid, but Jesus Christ died for you. He's died, he buried, he rose again the third day, he's ascended into heaven, and he desires to be your Savior. All you have to do is place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and he has promised he will save you. He will forgive your sins. He will give to you eternal life. You can know that you possess eternal life. You can know that you have a home in heaven. You can know that as certain as you're sitting in that seat today. And friend, if you don't have that assurance in your heart, in just a moment, when we have a time of invitation, I want to challenge you to do me a favor, step out of your seat and let us take a Bible. We'll have somebody take you aside privately. We don't want to embarrass you, but we do want to be of help to you today. We'll take you aside and show you from the Bible how you can know for certain that your sins have been forgiven, how you know that you know you're a child of God, how you can know that you have eternal life. We want to do that for you today, if you will let us. So let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer.